Welcome to Watershed Chats, presented by the Water People Podcast in collaboration with Patagonia. Watershed moments are traditionally understood as a division or distinction between two phases. They can be turning points that define our shared history. Here, we sit down with experts and those having a go at building and dreaming new ways into fruition for a healthy and habitable future on planet Ocean. Our podcast comes to you from the coastal land and waters of both the Bundjalung and Gubby Gubby nations. We'd like to acknowledge these traditional custodians and pay respects to elders past, present, and emerging. We'd also like to extend that respect to all First Nations people this podcast ripples out toward. Crystal Van Hoot is a surfer and marine ecologist based in the coastal town of Raglan on the North Island of New Zealand. Crystal started the Karioi project just over 10 years ago with a vision to restore biodiversity from local mountain to sea. She writes, when you look across the horizon, there's an invisible web of threads from New Zealand to the rest of the world. They're the flight paths of seabirds traveling thousands of kilometers from nesting to feeding grounds. Just 200 years ago, seabirds filled our coastal forests, and every year thousands of seabirds flock to our coastline to raise their chicks. It's no coincidence that we're known as the seabird capital of the world. The Karioi Project does some of the dirtier work in protecting their biodiversity, trapping and removing invasive predators that threaten endemic migrating seabirds. Their extensive invasive predator control program enlists the local community to remove animals not native to New Zealand who prey on vulnerable seabird eggs and chicks. In the process, they're creating opportunities for practical conservation, local employment, and education. Their community-led team have removed over 14,000 predators, increased the number of seabirds successfully nesting, and with over 350 volunteers, they've clocked up tens of thousands of hours looking after their local ecology. So, Crystal, thank you for joining us. This is Watershed Chats, where we dive into basically people just doing good stuff, and you're one of those people. So thanks for joining us. Thanks. Great to be here. Mm. So uh, where you are right now is across the ditch. I'm here on the eastern... Actually, I'm, I'm pretty much as close to you all as we could get here in Australia. I'm on the most easterly point of uh, our big island. Uh, and where are you? I'm in Raglan, New Zealand. Uh, we've had lots of just amazing weather. I'm sitting here in a T-shirt. It's been sunny. I mean, I think we're going to get some rain, but it's been sunny and we've had the most amazing wind-free autumn so lots of lots of amazing surf and calm days so Mm -hmm. couldn't really ask for better Mm, lovely so your position there in in raglan is probably an an enviable one for all the people listening really because raglan is a an incredible location on the west coast of the north island new zealand it's got a beautiful mountain that overlooks a series of amazing waves and a lovely little village town right on the edge of a a river. It's an area that I reckon a lot of people travel to for the ecological beauty and the, the, you know, the mellow culture and the blending of, you know, sort of well-being and healthy people living there in that space. And as an outsider, you know, well, kind of an outsider, I was born in New Zealand and, and have spent a fair bit of time back there in NZ and bits and pieces in Raglan. But from a distance, you know, this looks like a really healthy, balanced, thriving place. Is it? 
Yeah, I mean, it is pretty amazing. I mean, I've got to say that I live here, but I've lived here for over 20 years, so I guess that's a good indicator. Mm. And, I mean, the place, I think Raglan's always been seen as off the beaten track. You know, people, mostly surfers, used to live here. Surfers, self-employed and unemployed um, used to be pretty much what populated Raglan probably, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And uh, but it has seen a bit of a makeover. Um, it's definitely become a bit of a tourist destination. But I think it, like you say, it attracts people that just love that wild west coast, back to nature kind of setting. You know, you're not looking for too much glamour, but you might, you know, you'll still find all the comforts here that you that you need and want, might want. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty special place, and there's definitely some amazing projects in this little town. Less than 5,000 permanent residents, but some amazing projects that have started here and that have been going for many, many years and have led the way nationally as to, hey, this is what communities can do. And I think that's that's an exciting place mm. to be and exciting people to be around who, who inspire, you know, everything we do. Mm. And, and what you do is work in a whole range of things but I'd like to I guess dive right into what the Curryway project is. Yeah so like you say the Curryway project is basically focused around the mountain but it's so much more than that it's grown so much it started basically when a group of volunteers and passionate people wanted to be proactive and do something around restoring biodiversity on the mountain and for those people unaware um, you know Invasive predators are a major issue in New Zealand and they threaten all our native wildlife. So for us, it's a big focus to be able to manage or or eliminate those predators. So the project started just around 10 hectares and a handful of volunteers um, doing some of that work and trapping predators and it's grown into a landscape scale project where we're We've got hundreds of volunteers involved in education program and um, and a seabird monitoring program, and it's continuously expanding. And yeah, we definitely, you know, just with the vision of restoring biodiversity from the mountain to the sea and getting people involved through practical conservation and education. Mm. So the way we, I guess, came across your work is through Patagonia, um, wanting to support the project and and us getting over there and, and seeing firsthand um, the work that you all are doing throughout last year, a couple couple of visits there. And and really, it just really impressed us how much community engagement you have and how, you know, there is the focus on removing invasive species that are there, threatening the, the biodiversity of that beautiful mountain that, that literally pours right down to the water's edge of those amazing left-hand point breaks. And, and I just, I guess I wanted to hear from you what the inspiration is for people to join in when, when you're looking at this work. Cause you know, it's not, it's not like the most glamorous thing to go out and be trudging through the bush and setting traps and stuff. And, and a lot of it seems actually quite solitary where people just go on their own tracks that they monitor and, and do this sort of on their own, uh, even though you do have these, you know, great social get-togethers and and a lot of interaction between everyone who's in the project. But, like, what's the motivator? Is it the seabirds for you or is there something else that you'll use and tap into to get such great participation? I'd say it's a variety of things. Definitely for some people it's just 
to find that solitude and to do something for our planet and we're better than to do it in your own backyard um, there's a lot of people that live around the mountain that live you know at the base of the mountain and like you say near those amazing surf spots and and they want to give something back I would say that's a real starting point for people but as we've grown like we've definitely tried to cater to different needs there's people that come and want to find that solitude and they want a trap line all by themselves and they the steeper the better and the harder the better because they want to work on their fitness and then you get people that want just the easy tracks you know closer to the beach and they have beautiful views and they get to do their bit and it's a real motivator like if you want to go for walks on a regular basis in the bush what better place than to motivate you to actually go out and do something while you're there there's definitely that side of it. There's other people that come and also really want to connect with like-minded people. And so we do try and cater, you know, for providing opportunities where people do get together and do working bees or workshops where we're building things or making things that support the project. And then for those that, you know, don't really feel like, you know, trapping in the bush is their thing or something they have time for, we now also have a backyard program where basically everyone in our community can get a trap either through our trapping library or they can purchase one and trap in their own backyards. And that's a really great way to just go out with your kids and do some of that or some of the really keen parents, like they take their kids out on their trap lines. So so a real variety of um, kind of different activities people can do. Um, we also have an education program that we can get people to volunteer on. Uh, we also have paid staff now that we've over the years have built up a you know team of paid people. And then also um, we have a seabird, you know, monitoring program. So we've, again, over the years have built up a number of volunteers that go out and check the burrows and that. And I guess the seabirds are definitely really inspiring. You know, it's it's a key species that contributes to the healthy ecosystem functioning of, the, of our coastal forests. So they're a real key element. They bring you know, nutrients from the ocean back to the land and, and they excavate the you know, the soil and turn it over um, as they create their burrows, which is where they lay their egg and rear their chicks. Um, but then they're also bringing a lot of nutrients with them, obviously, through their guano. So mm. so the seabirds are this really incredible link. Ironically, they come in <laughs> during dark. Um, so just on, you know, after, after the sun goes down, the birds start coming in. So the seabirds you don't see very often. But I think they are an inspiration for people. But in saying that, all our bird life is an inspiration for people and seeing native birds back in, on our mountain and in people's backyard is a huge motivator for our volunteers. And often they say, I just want to help so I can bring back the birds. Mm, because the mountain was really a, sea, a seabird mountain. Isn't that the history of that place and the stories of there being just thousands of seabirds all around there? Yeah, yeah, it would have been inundated. And we're just working with the last remnant seabird that's been able to hang on and is still perhaps a little bit more robust and, and able to, um, you know, breed on the mainland, which is in itself unique. Um, New Zealand is literally the seabird capital of the world, but most of our seabirds are now on offshore islands. There's very few remnant populations on the mainland, and the grey-faced petrel is one of them, even though it is coming at a point where it is near threatened on the IUCN list, but it's kind of hanging in there. But without the community effort, it wouldn't be able to successfully breed. So in the early days when we started this program, everything we found was dead, sadly. You know, broken eggs, dead chicks, um, occasionally dead adults as well. But because they're really long breeding, these birds can come, 
you know, back for 20, 30 years and keep coming back and trying to breed unsuccessfully. And we managed to just restore some of their habitat now and protect them enough that we are seeing chicks fledge again, which is pretty exciting. Mm. When you all first started, what kind of nest numbers and chick numbers were you looking at compared to now? Oh, in the early days, we only knew of a few old burrow sites. We could go out at night and hear the birds come in. Um, so that's kind of why we knew they were there because locals were reporting of hearing, you know, screeching in the night and maybe thinking they were bats. And then we sent out a team and they went and found these birds and seabirds calling and spotted them. And these birds kind of come crashing through the bush and land literally at your feet sometimes if you're in the right place. So, so they're, they're really quite amazing. I always say it's like, you know, if, if I come back to this world again, I want to come back as a seabird because, you know, they can fly, they can dive, they can walk on land and, you know, they can swim, you know, they, they can just do everything. And mm. they're really quite amazing how they, how they manage it. And so, yeah, these birds would come in crashing through the bush and we would go then searching for these burrows. But as you can imagine, if you've got a large landscape and, you know, long coastline, it was like looking for a needle in the haystack. So we've been using what we call a species dog, which is able to really pick up the odour of the seabirds and find new nesting sites for us. So we would find these new sites based on, you know, coastline surveys that we'd done. Then the seabird would come in and follow up and find these new burrow sites. And what we found is mostly, like I said, everything was dead or empty. And over the years, we've seen seabirds come back and successfully breed. So we've gone from just a handful of burrows that we knew about, and now we've got over 50. Wow. Is that really like a central hook for people when you have that sort of tangible result in the work? Are people really stoked on that in the community? Like people who perhaps were not participating or just sort of on the edges, are they coming around now because of those sort of indicators? Yeah, I mean, you'd hope so. I mean, it means something different to everyone, but definitely people that understand the work that goes into, you know, bringing back this remnant kind of population uh, really appreciate it. I think um, for our volunteers, it's inspiring to know that all those hours trapping contribute to a, a bigger goal. And everything we do also benefits our forest birds. So mm -hmm. people, people are seeing kaka back in their backyard, you know, they regularly hearing birds, flocks of kiriroo and which is a native New Zealand pigeon. You know, so so people are not only inspired by the seabirds, but also about, you know, if we can have really positive benefits for these seabirds, we can also see really positive results for our forest birds. So so that kind of like an indicator species of anything. Mm, yeah, I've always loved the way that you speak about that in terms of you know, these seabirds being a thread that you pull that, that links and ties into everything else in the ecosystem. Is that something you experience? Like when you are there, is that something you just have to sort of envision and you, you can close your eyes and envision those threads going out into the rest of ecology? Or, or is these sort of things like you're saying where there's these great positive knock-on effects with other native species uh, a real illustration of that interconnection for you? Yeah, I, th I think it's definitely both. I think, yeah, like, I mean, we have that quote, you know, seabirds connect us to the rest of the world. And um, when you see their flight paths, which have been tracked with GPS monitors and that, like, they go all the way to North America, South America, 
Japan and, you know, and it's a variety of seabirds that fly through those places. And then when it's breeding time, they basically have this little GPS unit within them that zooms them back straight to their breeding site. So they come back to their home nesting grounds. And um, it's incredibly you know, amazing, the fact that they can even find those little burrows back, you know, that they can find their way back home. So there's a real, um, you know, they're, they're the true locals, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but they're also a real indicator species because when things are happening out in the ocean, you know, they, they're indicators of the fish stock, you know, they follow our fish stocks around. So when our fish stocks go down or in decline, it's going to reflect into it in our seabirds. They're indicators of climate change and pollution. You know, all those things can be translated back into what the birds are doing, you know, how they're coming back, what numbers are surviving. You know, research programs can show as fish stocks decline, the condition on the body of the bird declines. You know, so mm. everything that we do, the impact we have on our planet impacts our birds. And so they become this amazing species not only as an indicator of what's happening on land, but also what's happening out there at sea. Yeah, because there's some pretty radical numbers, isn't there, in terms of species decline with seabirds and, and also even things just like how consistently now seabirds are found with plastic in their systems. Something like 90-something percent of seabirds will have some plastic in their system. Yeah, With your education side of it, which is by the way, amazing because when we were there last time, we got to uh, hang out with a bunch of the school kids one afternoon yeah. with the, the after-school program that was happening there where we, you know, went into the inner parts of the inlet there where all the mud flats were and uh, little pockets of bush where the kids were setting traps and and it was just fantastic. I loved it. We were, I, I don't know, there was maybe a dozen or 15 or so kids there and pretty much all of them were barefooted and just awesome little wildlings running around having a good time out in in the bush and in that little space there but also yes yeah, setting the traps like I, I can't remember what age they were somewhere around the 10 10 years of age where they were just laughing and sort of jostling and pushing each other while setting these traps that you could really hurt if you got your finger in the wrong spot and uh yeah i, I just yeah. loved that that you have such a range in the project there where you're you're there with kids of that age and you're working in that education um, and the storytelling there but there's also you know the next morning we were there with I think those those two older gentlemen that were with us were perhaps in their early 80s mm. who were pretty much the same as the kids the, the afternoon before that where they were having a good laugh at each other while you know walking through the bush quite a lot slower than the little eight-year-olds were the, the day before, but they were setting traps and, and really knowledgeable about that space and the history there. And I was just curious to know if that was something that's just sort of grown organically throughout the years, or did you start with that in mind with there being such a range in the project? Yeah, yeah. I, I guess definitely really intentionally. Probably, you know, some people would have said or the Department of Conservation would have said that a lot of conservation was being done by the grey power, you know, like the older people that had a bit more time, you know, retired. And a lot of our forest and bird groups would have, you know, around the country would have reflected that age group. Our intention was very much around getting young people involved um, and building that future generation that can take over where we've started. So, 
right from the start we've wrapped education around everything we do and and have had a real uh, philosophy around being family inclusive I mean that's really subtle little things you know it wasn't always the great amazing things but just having space for children to be you know having trap lines where children can walk easily and join their parents you know like and then having some education activities you know where kids could come along and learn more and then definitely over time we formalize that into actual education programs but yeah I definitely remember that that first year I mean we already set out to do that and I think we were just really really lucky that in Raglan we have not only an amazing community but we've got an amazing range of ecologists and scientific experts and people that work in conservation that have contributed and donated their time to you know like go and look in streams and we did like an electric fishing activity where you put an electric machine into the that brings up the fish mm. and the kids would get to see the fish you know or we'd get an invertebrate guy out who showed them the insects or we get a native plant expert out and they'd you know go and look at all the plants and trees and like identify them with the kids so there was always ideas bubbling to the surface we were like hey this would be fun to do and I think it was probably a reflection of the team as well because we just love doing that kind of stuff ourselves mm-hmm. um so it makes it very easy but I think you do have to be really intentional about it and I think we've been just so blessed by the the caliber of people that live in this community and not only do they go to work and you know do ecology or science or conservation in their day jobs they come back and volunteer as well so yeah like you said you know there's a huge range of age groups but also a huge amount of people with different skills and strengths that we've been able to invite to be a part of this journey Mm, and and also cultural knowledge too isn't there there's quite a a great cross-pollination between indigenous community and everyone else who's there all the time in Raglan but I'm sure there's probably people who pass through because it is a bit of a tourist spot where you have people who come through for a period and participate. Uh, How has that side of this project been for you and for your team working with Indigenous knowledge and community? Yeah, I mean, we've always um, worked together with our local hapu or our Indigenous family groups. There's some families particularly that are very environmentally focused and another real key value for the project was to look for opportunities to create employment. And so one of the hapu trusts, they set up their own pest control company and they've been able to do contract work for not only us but also the Department of Conservation and the Regional Council. Um, So they've been able to build up a team and they actually go out throughout the Waikato now and do contracts, um, predator control contracts. So that's generated um, employment for them. And then at the same time, we've been able to generate employment, you know, and build a team here. Mm. So we've all benefited. We've been able to create a whole range of jobs for both in education and conservation. Mm. Yeah, so that's been really valuable. And we're always doing our best to to connect together, to meet together. And definitely some years we've been a lot better at it than others. Um, You know, like sometimes it's hard to get everyone in the same room. But, yeah, like kind of hearing that community voice, I guess, has been really important. And Mm -hmm. that sometimes has slowed us down. You know, sometimes we've had to delay making decisions or going forward because we've – 
wanted to build the relationships and bring our community alongside with us. Uh, we might have these grand ideas, but if people aren't supporting that and aren't on board, it gets a lot harder. And so mm. we've definitely very intentionally try to build relationships with people, consult you know, around their opinion and get feedback and uh, yeah. and then move forward. So that's been really important, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, it's an interesting one too, isn't it? Because it's not as though it's just like a tree planting exercise too. Like this is trapping that we're talking about here. You've got possums and stoats. Uh, was there any other species there that were being targeted with trapping? Yeah, rats and mice. Yeah, the whole suite really, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, that's not everyone's cup of tea, you know. And every, it, it, I guess with projects like this where it, it is really admirable and aiming to include and hear from everyone in the community, you know, you, you can't really satisfy everyone. And, you know, that work, you know, it's, it's not that straight ahead sort of tree planting regen style work. But even then, that's that can come up against real opposition um, from people as well. So I guess in all these sort of endeavours, you know, it is going to be hard to please everyone. But I, I just remember being there and feeling as though there was just such a, a tangible nature to the work and that that was so wonderful because it was so easy for people to pass on your story to other people. And that's been the same for us over here. I've, I've just spoken about the Kariwai Project with so many people in my own community because of how great you all have done the the broad participation over there. And I was just curious, like storytelling, is that something that you all have had to really um, knuckle down and try and work on? Or do you feel like it, it tells its own story? How are you bringing new people in and, I guess, reinforcing the enthusiasm with the people you already have in the fold? Yeah, definitely a lot of learning over the years. Storytelling has become part of who we are and we've had to learn to do it better. I think it's really easy, you know, when you're leading these things to hold information and and, and think everyone else knows what's in your head mm. and um, and they don't. <laughs> so, so I think That's probably a good thing like, for a lot of us, say eh? I don't think they'd want yeah. it's in my head <laughs> most of the time either. <laughs> yeah so uh, but yeah so stories come out and I guess everyone has their own story you know the time that they started participating and joining us and feeling Mm. welcome I I guess a big thing for us has been also a meeting around food you know I don't think there's many activities we do without food you know and we invite people to be a part of that Um, we give them lots of cake and so you know I'd like to think that the majority of people or most, nearly everyone, has felt welcome. Um, we try and, um, I know Bexy, our volunteer coordinator, works hard to really find out what drives people and the volunteers that come along, you know. So they might say, hey, I want to volunteer. And she spends a lot of time finding out what is it that gets them excited and how do they want to be a part of the project and how can we meet that need. And like you say, we can't keep everyone happy, but I think we can listen Mm-hmm. And and I think listening is really important part of, uh, you know, what we do is listening and hearing what people have to say and then coming up with a, with a good decision and a way forward that most people can live with. Like you say, predator control is contentious. It's, it's you know, trapping is not that sexy, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard work and, and um, you know, there's got to be a real respect for the animal there as well. It's definitely not something that any of us do lightheartedly. But then there is also the vision and sharing that vision and what we're trying to achieve is very much part of sharing our story and inviting people to be a part of that and to contribute their skills. 
what's your process for getting more volunteers? How do you do that? You know, we have the usual, you know, Facebook page and Instagram and all sorts of things, you know, where we, sh- we share our story on our, on our website and that. Uh, we do working bees. I mean, I think the very first time uh, was very much through personal connections. We've also got, you know, on our team, we've got people that have two jobs. So they work for us as well as, you know, Bexie's a yoga teacher, Duncan's shapes surfboards. You know, other people do other education work for some of the more commercial operators. And so they talk about the project, you know, invite people to be a part of it. So a lot of it is word of mouth. Sometimes people just get involved because they get a heck of a lot of possums in their backyard and then they're like, hey, I can help out with this. Um, so they come to us um, and they find us on online. Um, but we also put out calls for specific volunteers or if we, if we really need more people for, for certain tasks or if we're expanding the project, we've put out calls and, you know, newsletters and local chronicle newspaper and, um, and said, hey, you know, we need more volunteers or and maybe say what we need them for. Yeah, and that's been really successful. And I guess for us, a measure of, you know, success around that is just seeing, you know, as some volunteers step down, we see new volunteers step up. And so sometimes, you know, we give it a push and then we kind of plateau a bit and then we get another push and then we get more volunteers on board. But it's, I think the invitation has to be there the opportunities have to be there and volunteers are a precious, precious resource, you know, people giving up their own time to contribute. And so we want them to feel valued and appreciated for everything they do when they're with us. Mm. Yeah. Well, it seems to be working pretty damn well. Where would you say the project is at right now in terms of some recent successes or challenges? For everything or <laughs> specifically anything? Yeah, or yeah just... well, just, I guess, um, what cycle are you in right now with the work that you're doing and, yeah, how's the outlook looking? Because, you know, this is a pretty trippy time around the world yeah. where we're seeing, we're seeing, you know, all kinds of species either enjoying a bit of space because we don't have people tramping through uh, national parks in different parts of the world or you don't have as much air traffic um you know there's lots of different things where some animals are, are actually in a bit of a um a positive turn because of the lack of human activity around the world but a lot of species are, are really struggling where are you at right now with seabird numbers and the nesting numbers in the last cycle of things and and where do you feel like it's heading yeah, I mean, definitely being tough times, you know, we were in lockdown, so there was no trapping for four four weeks, which was a real, real tough one for many of us. Um, but, you know, everything's back up and going here now, so we're back out there. You know, I mean, I guess, yeah, nature has had a bit of a reprieve from the busyness of human, you know, occupation. But in New Zealand, because our native species is so vulnerable to invasive predators, stopping the work that we're doing is not beneficial to them. So that was definitely a tension for us and a challenge. Oh, wow. So was um, there, did you see anything then in those four weeks of not being able to trap where or there was an increase in stoat and possum numbers or anything like that? Well, we saw it in the sense that most of the traps were full when we went back, mm. you know, so there was lots of work to do coming back. A month break wasn't the 
complete end of things you know it could have been if it had been longer it would have been a lot worse um for us going into like the gray face petrel is a winter breeder so for us it was a really important time because the birds start coming back in in april but they don't lay their eggs till july so that again you know we're just coming into that season so Mm. we've been able to do all the prepping work around the burrows we do extra trapping and we have camera work that we do so we did catch the the last of the birds coming in so uh, that's been great yeah i mean it's definitely been a period of time where we've had to really reflect i mean if anything you know the slowing down has given us a chance to reflect and appreciate you know what nature gives us very much so and and then also looking at ourselves saying how do we move forward and hopefully well I definitely think people in the slowing down even though we don't want it to come through a global health crisis but in the process of slowing down I think people have reconnected and perhaps um, gained a you know a little bit more of an appreciation um, for nature and what it gives us Mm. And ultimately, you know, it's our job to remind people that biodiversity loss is one of the biggest threats we face. You know, and without biodiversity, the world's ecological processes don't function as well. And we are here, have an opportunity for people to be hands-on to help restore a bit of biodiversity in their own backyard. And in this region itself, in the Waikato region, um, the amount of biodiversity loss that we've seen here compared to like 200 years ago is, is the highest in New Zealand. So even though, you know, Karioi in comparison to some mountains is not the biggest, it's a vital piece of coastal landscape that we don't want to lose. And so we're just kind of, you know, really ramping up and just highlighting how important the work is that we do every day. Yeah, well, I'm super appreciative of that work. I remember paddling up that coast from Taranaki to Piha uh, quite a few years ago and and really being just shocked at how little, you know, really vegetate like beautiful bush basically came down to the shoreline there and it was really only at Raglan and up near Piha where I guess there's a reserve of some sort there that had beautiful forest in um, such proximity to the beach and everything else seemed pretty much stripped and farmed so so yeah I hear you there in terms of um, the mountain and your work there being so important and and I guess you just you touched on it but I kind of wanted to have that as sort of the parting thought here or the takeaway for people listening about how you're zooming in on these species you're zooming in on the uh, invasives you're zooming in on that beautiful little village and that amazing mountain and those waves just there but they do connect to such a bigger story i just if you have any more thoughts on that i always love hearing what you have to say about the importance of these threads that go out throughout our especially our marine habitat these places where most of us who are listening and and certainly you and i are are coastal people Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much more to say, isn't there, when it comes to, you know, our water quality, you know, like, you know, all the species around this mountain, you know, we've got orca and seals and seabirds and fish, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, we've only talked about a few select species, but, you know, at the end of the day, so many of our fish stocks are threatened, you know, from overfishing and pollution and, you know, same with the seabirds, you know, they're the most threatened bird in the world. So I think it's a privilege that we've got 
this bird that we can focus on, but it stands for so much more. It stands for what we could lose. And that's what biodiversity is all about, isn't it? Is kind of keeping all those species together to have a whole healthy functioning ecosystem. And biodiversity kind of then brings stability for for those habitats and all the processes and the climate that comes with that. And um, if we don't have them, we have a a world that's less able to provide for our needs. Um, Not that that should be the driving, you know, key driver, but, you know, people are part of nature. And by maintaining biodiversity, we can keep functioning. And um, we're so interconnected um you can't separate the two so yeah it's definitely something i'm really passionate about um is you know biodiversity loss like i said is just one of the biggest threats we face and we need to do everything we can you know to restore it This episode of Watershed Chats is presented by Patagonia, whose purpose-driven mission is to use business to protect our home planet. Thanks to our sound engineer and musician, Shannon Sol Carroll, and artist-in-residence, Chris Miyashiro. On behalf of myself, Lauren Hill, and my co-host, Dave Rastovich, thanks for listening with us. Learn more at waterpeoplepodcast.com.